how can I be certain they're just thoughts? There's no such thing as absolute certainty, but there is assurance sufficient for the purposes of human life. John Stuart Mill Although I try to reassure my patients that people who experience distressing bad thoughts, like theirs, do not act on them, I can understand their horror at having such thoughts. After all, if babies were never killed by their parents, then thoughts about harming infants would easily be recognized as ridiculous. But sadly, we live in a world in which babies are murdered, and most often at the hands of their own parents. As an example, a recent newspaper account described a teenage mother who was charged with killing her one-month-old son by putting him in a microwave oven and turning it on. While she awaited trial, she was held without bail in a psychiatric hospital. Imagine the fear that reading an article like this strikes in the heart of a new mother, like Sally, whom we met earlier, who suffers alone with worries about harming her infant child. The news media serve us a regular diet of sensational stories about the dangers surrounding us. For example, a recent cover of Sports Illustrated magazine carried the ominous title, Who's Coaching Your Kid? The Frightening Truth About Child Molestation in Youth Sports. Above mugshots of eight male coaches convicted of sexually molesting adolescents who had been trusted to their care. This article provided a valuable service by warming parents about truly dangerous men who might prey upon their children. Amazingly, the article reported that the average preferential molester, the kind most common in youth sports, victimizes about 120 children before he's caught. As a parent and little league coach, I take to heart the guidelines suggested by the Sports Illustrated article for checking out the coaches that I entrust my children to. On the other hand, I've also seen the impact this story can have on a man tormented by his fears that he might one day sexually abuse children when every bit of evidence suggests that he will never act upon his bad thoughts. No wonder the majority of patients in my group for severe bad thoughts tell me that they have contemplated suicide. I am not fit to live in a normal society, is a common refrain from one of my patients. While I agree that this sentiment certainly is true for the child molesters described in the magazine article, some of whom are serving prison sentences for up to 44 years, this does not apply to the man tormented by doubt and guilt over bad thoughts, thoughts that he is no more likely to act upon than I am. My patients with bad thoughts are unable to draw this crucial distinction. Almost without exception, people who suffer from disturbing bad thoughts are never quite convinced that they won't one day snap and act upon them. After the shooting at Columbine High School, some of my patients with violent obsessions worried that they might one day act on their thoughts and tormented themselves worrying that they might be the next Columbine High School killers. Several years ago, when the trial of Susan Smith was in the news, many women with obsessions about harming their children were horrified to hear that this seemingly normal mother, who could lock her children in the car, strap them in, and then watch as the car sank into the lake. The question I heard most often was, how can I be sure that I won't end up like Susan Smith? A recent book about the evil acts humans have performed, Dark Nature, Describe the chilling scenario this way. On the night of October 25th, 1994, Susan Smith put her Mazda car into gear, slammed the door, and let it roll down a boat ramp into a dark country lake in Southern Carolina. Strapped into the back seat were two baby sons, the ones nicknamed Precious 
and Sugarfoot. An hour later, she accused an unknown black man of stealing the car and kidnapping her children at gunpoint, staring into the camera and pleading so that thousands were searching in response to her tearful appeals on national television. But when nothing was found, the investigation turned back on the media family, and Susan made a stunning confession. She took the police to where the car was and the boys' bodies were found. The lying and deceit involved produced shock and outrage in a public accustomed to explaining the dangers of strangers to their children. But faced now with the far scarier statistic that, in the United States alone, 1,000 children are killed each year by their parents or close relatives. That half of those victims are under the age of one, and most of these are murdered by their mothers. Similarly, many male patients with violent obsessions, respected pillars of their communities, patients who will never act on their thoughts, worry that they may one day snap and become a mass killer like Jeffrey Dahmer. This question brings me to the central question of this chapter. How can I be certain that these are only thoughts? Case Study Uncertainty About Bad Thoughts Frank was a young man in my group in his mid-twenties who illustrated to me the torturous problem of OCD sufferers with bad thoughts. Try as he might, he simply couldn't feel certain enough to satisfy himself that he wouldn't one day act on his violent thoughts and end up like Jeffrey Dahmer. By the time Frank joined my group for people suffering from bad thoughts, he had already been treated by one of my colleagues and had made significant gains. Frank suffered from violent obsessions about stabbing people. He avoided knives and other sharp objects, and his worst fear was that he might one day become like Jeffrey Dahmer. Frank came from a very religious family and was taught, or at least learned, that he was never to express any angry feelings. His violent thoughts had begun a few years before, with worries of stabbing a family member. As with most of my other patients with bad thoughts and a strict Christian upbringing, Frank feared that he had already committed a crime, an unpardonable sin, simply by thinking such thoughts and worried that he had already been destined for hell. But happily, with exposure treatment at our clinic, such as holding knives and viewing looping tapes of his worst fears described in his own words, and by learning how to better control his anger, Frank was much better. He was now able to work with his bad thoughts coming in only occasionally. Yet Frank still tried to feel completely certain that he would not one day become a mass murderer like Jeffrey Dahmer. Part of Frank's treatment had been to watch a filmed biography of Dahmer over and over until it lost its ability to frighten him and became simply boring. Having OCD and tending to see things as either black or white in perfectionist terms, as well as being over-conscientious, he was extremely hard on himself and insisted that he somehow be guaranteed that he would not one day snap and act on his thoughts. At one point, Frank told me that he was now concerned that he was feeling too little anxiety, which made him think that perhaps he was a sociopath without a conscious after all, and he would end up like Jeffrey Dahmer. When other group members reminded Frank that no one, tormented by bad thoughts or not, could ever be guaranteed that he would never act upon his thoughts, Frank agreed that this was logical, and he understood it while he was there in the clinic. However, when he was on his own, he frequently felt a need to try to convince himself completely. Perhaps with continued cognitive therapy for OCD, as described later in this book, 
Frank will finally stop his quest for absolute certainty. Until then, Frank continues to work, is learning to express anger appropriately, and is living life again, for the first time in many years. Discussing certainty with my patients is a precarious balancing act. On one hand, most are obsessed with the effort to reach absolute certainty that they can never act on their thoughts, and are tormented by the existence of even the slightest doubt. This is always a losing battle, since we cannot be 100% certain of anything. It is not even absolutely certain that the sun will rise tomorrow, and is far less certain that I will not commit a murder one day. Although I am able to live a relatively sane life knowing that this is a minute possibility not worth worrying about. For patients like Isaac, whose fears wanting to have sex with animals, and Marty, who fears wanting to have sex with her young son, their search for certainty leads them to scan their bodies to prove to themselves they are not aroused. Both have told me that when they worry that they really want to act on their obsession, they will check to make sure that they do not feel any sexual arousal or tingling. In every case, this increases their anxiety because they fail to realize that any sensitive part of our body that we focus all of our attention on will have some feelings, simply due to the increased attention to that area. Try this for yourself. Focus your attention on your genitals for a few seconds and try to prove to yourself that you feel absolutely no sensations there. It should now be obvious that a key part of successfully treating sufferers of bad thoughts such as Isaac and Marty, therefore, lie in getting them to stop checking their bodies for reassurance, since doing so actually decreases their confidence and raises their fear that they really want to act on their urges. To the off-questioned, how can I be absolutely certain I will never act on my bad thoughts, my answer is simple. You can't. In fact, the very act of trying to obtain perfect certainty is often the worst source of distress for those suffering from violent sexual blasphemous thoughts. It is not coincidental that the French refer to obsessive-compulsive disorder as the doubting disease, for this is a core feature of the loop my patients are caught in, endlessly seeking reassurance and futilely seeking absolute certainty. Does everyone suffering from intrusive, violent, sexual blasphemous thoughts have OCD? Technically, yes. Based upon the official diagnostic criteria of the American Psychiatric Association, anyone with the bad thoughts I've been describing that occur frequently or interfere with his or her life would be diagnosed with OCD. Table 3. Characteristics of Obsessive Compulsive Disorder OCD Neither obsessions or compulsions, which are very distressing, take more than one hour a day or interfere with doing work, school, or social activities. Obsessions are intrusive and unpleasant thoughts, impulses, or images that are not excessive worries about real-life problems. Examples, aggressive obsessions, sexual obsessions, blasphemous obsessions, doubting obsessions, Contamination obsessions, symmetry obsessions, perfectionistic obsessions. Compulsions are actions that the person feels driven to do over and over again, either because of an obsession or according to rigid rules. The actions are done to reduce distress or to prevent something bad from happening. Examples washing, checking, repeating, praying, touching, counting, hoarding or saving things, rearranging or tidying up asking for reassurance. This permits us to calculate another estimate of how common severe bad thoughts are in almost every culture that has been studied. 
the prevalence of OCD is at least 2% of the general population. Further, in these door-to-door epidemiological surveys, unlike in patients who come to us for treatment, the majority have obsessions or bad thoughts only. Given these two facts, we can conservatively estimate that 1% of the population suffers from bad thoughts at a given time, or more than 2 million sufferers in the United States alone. Although the imp of the perverse shrewdly plants his seed of doubt in places where it can never totally be expunged, I do discuss some evidence with my patients at the start of treatment to reasonably assure them that the possibility of ever acting on their bad thoughts is negligible. Specifically, I tell them the crucial differences between them, who suffer from disturbing but bad thoughts, and the infamous people they have read about who actually have committed horrible actions. As an example, I point out that the very fact that they have never acted on their thoughts and urges up until now is an excellent predictor that they will never act on them. A rock-solid axiom of both psychology and criminology is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Likewise, the mere fact that they feel guilt and distress over their bad thoughts is a powerful indicator that they will not act on their bad thoughts. On the other hand, as I acknowledged at the beginning of this chapter, I am not naive enough to believe that no people commit criminal acts. Therefore, I am always looking for clues that a patient may be truly dangerous. Some warning signs. I wrote earlier that although my patients often confess their thoughts of harming children or a spouse, I wrote earlier that although my patients often confess thoughts of harming their children or spouse, I don't take action on their thoughts. That is, I don't worry that they will act on these thoughts and become a threat to others. Does that mean I am not concerned about any patients? Absolutely not. Of the thousands of patients who have passed through our clinic over the past 15 years, just a handful have concerned me greatly. Here is one example. A young man from another state was referred by his psychiatrist for behavior therapy to expose him to his bad thoughts about harming other people. However, when I met this man, he began telling me about his thoughts. I grew more and more concerned. I tried to reassure myself by asking him many detailed questions to determine whether exposure therapy was indicated for his problem. His answers to my questions raised my level of concern even higher. He told me that he liked to watch appearances on television by public figures such as the Pope or President and while watching them, he would imagine himself in the crowd firing a shot at one of these leaders. When he described these experiences, I wasn't convinced that the idea was totally distasteful to him. He also told me about thoughts of stabbing and shooting his parents. He said that sometimes he tested himself by standing in their bedroom doorway and pointing an air rifle at them as they slept to prove to himself he wouldn't really pull the trigger. At the conclusion of our interview, I told him that behavioral therapy was not appropriate for his problem, and that instead I was sending him back to his doctor for further testing. Later that day, I telephoned the referring doctor to tell him that I had a gut feeling that his patient could be potentially dangerous, and I recommended him to a full battery of projective psychological tests in his hometown to rule out psychosis or criminal potential. What was it about this fellow that made me worry? Partly, it was that he didn't feel tormented by, or even particularly guilty about his bad thoughts. Partly, it was that when he spoke about his parents or other people in his town, he seemed to express too much anger towards them. 
for slights he perceived that they had committed against him. Partly, it was that he had actually picked up a rifle and pointed it at people involved in his bad thoughts. Looking back, I suppose a combination of all these factors made me worry that he could be potentially dangerous and was suffering from a problem far more serious than OCD. As I write this chapter, new information has surfaced about the teenagers who shot fellow students in an armed raid on Columbine High School in Colorado. In tapes made during the planning of these shootings, a picture comes into focus of these teenagers as enraged adolescents who had been picked on by other students and were now eagerly planning their revenge. This combination of rage, fantasies about getting back at classmates who teased and excluded them, and easy access to firearms made for a deadly combination. On the other hand, the patients who who come to see me with violent or sexual thoughts present a wholly different picture. They're overly conscientious people who are tormented daily by their bad thoughts. These thoughts generate intense guilt, and indeed they feel sinful when such thoughts pass through their mind. I tell these patients that the very fact that they feel so upset, so ashamed, and so guilty about their thoughts should give them faith that they will never act on their thoughts. Yet typically, they are not so easily reassured. When they ask, how can I be certain that I won't snap one day and murder like Jeffrey Dahmer or Susan Smith or the Columbine High School shooters? I tell them that the people who engage in these criminal acts usually have precisely the opposite emotions from the guilt and shame my patients feel. The history of violent crime is dominated by individuals who have at various times been called sociopaths, psychopaths, or simply cold-blooded killers, indicating that they feel no guilt or remorse about their antisocial or criminal behavior. Even when hooked to a lie detector, describing horrible actions or lying, they show physiological reaction. In short, they don't feel guilty or remorseful about the most horrible acts they perform. Such individuals typically meet criteria for diagnosis of antipersonality disorder when adults, and for conic disorder before they reach the age 18. The characteristics of these disorders are listed in Table 4. Table 4. Characteristics of Conduct Disorders in Children and Antisocial Personality Disorders in Adults. Conduct Disorder. Age 14 or younger. Is violent or cruel to people or animals. Bullies or threatens others, picks fights, uses a weapon, bat, gun, broken bottle, brick knife, steals when confronting a victim, forces others into sexual activity, destroys property, sets fires, deliberately destroys property, lies or steals, seriously disobeys. Antisocial personality disorder, age 15 or older. Frequently does unlawful things that could lead to arrest. Repeatedly lies, cons others, or uses aliases. Acts impulsively and doesn't plan ahead. Frequently gets into physical fights or attacks. Is often reckless, disregards safety of self or others. Acts irresponsibly, doesn't pay bills, can't keep a job. Lacks remorse, doesn't feel guilty, explains away acts that harm others. These patients are the utter opposites of my patients with bad thoughts, who are over-conscientious and feel guilt and tremendous distress at having such thoughts. Many patients with bad thoughts would be diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, which, as Table 5 indicates, is characterized in part by over-conscientiousness. Table 5. Characteristics of Obsessive-Compulsive Personality Disorder, OCPD. 
overly conscientious and inflexible about moral and ethical issues, preoccupied with details or rules, loses the forest for the trees, perfectionism interferes with getting things done, excessively devoted to work, trouble throwing worthless things away, insists that others submit to his or her way of doing things and tolerates no deviation, lack of generosity, rigid and stubborn. The guilt and distress these patients suffer is the result of the part of their brain called the prefrontal cortex doing its job by energetically suppressing their bad thoughts. I recently asked my colleague, Dr. Carrie Savage, an expert in neuropsychology of OCD, what he would tell patients who worry that one day they might act on their urges. The fact that they feel guilt and distress about having these bad thoughts should reassure them that their orbital frontal cortex is doing its job, he said. It's working properly to inhibit their thoughts and use these urges, so they should have faith that they will not act on them. So, there is a vast difference between my patients who feel intense guilt and shame about their violent or sexual thoughts and those who commit crimes coolly and feel no guilt or remorse. To make these distinctions clearer, think back to the patient Sally, whom you met in the preface. She was horrified by thoughts that she might snap and harm her infant, thoughts that caused her intense shame and guilt. Sally, with contrast to Susan Smith, who strapped her two boys into their car seats, coolly watched as their car rolled into a lake, and then watched them struggle to escape before they drowned finally. Indeed, she was so cool and felt so little guilt that only a few hours later, she was standing in front of television on camera, lying convincingly about a black man who she said had kidnapped her children, pleading with the audience for help in returning her beloved children to her. Similarly, Jeffrey Dahmer, early in his killing spree, appeared in court and lied so believably that he convinced a judge and jury that he had done nothing worse than drinking a little too much, when he in fact had already killed. This coolness, lack of guilt, and deception is the polar opposite of my patient's emotions. They feel dreadful pain and guilt for merely having bad thoughts, and sometimes even confess to crimes they have not committed. Simon, for example, had horrific thoughts that he would run over a pedestrian while driving. These thoughts caused him so much intense guilt and shame that he rarely drove anyone anymore. When he did venture out, simply driving over a pothole or a speed bump could trigger his bad thoughts. Sometimes they became so intense that he looked in his rearview mirror and actually saw the body of the pedestrian lying in the road. When this happened, he would turn his car around and repeatedly drive back to the spot since he couldn't feel certain. He would then go home and listen to the television and radio news reports for the hit and run accident he was certain he had committed. Once, his guilt became so intense that he finally gave up and telephoned the police to confess a crime he had never committed. Who harms babies? Are there any predictors of which women will actually harm their children? In fact, there are. A small percentage of women who suffer from postpartum depression develop a much more serious disorder called postpartum psychosis. Although I do not know any details about the case above of the women charged with killing her baby in a microwave oven, my guess would be that she was suffering from a postpartum psychosis. Women suffering from a postpartum psychosis lose touch with reality. As an example, one new mother saw yellow smoke coming from her infant's nostrils 
and ears and interpret them as a sign that he was from the devil. She resolved that the only way to foil Satan was to leave her son in a trash can to die. Luckily, her husband returned from work early, heard crying from the trash can, and saved the boy's life. The mother was then hospitalized and her postpartum psychosis was successfully treated with medications and she returned to normal. When bad thoughts are dangerous. Below are situations in which you should be concerned about your bad thoughts and only seek professional treatment as soon as possible. Thankfully, such circumstances are present only in a small minority of people suffering from bad thoughts. If you do not feel upset by the thoughts, but instead find them pleasurable, Earlier, I described a man who watched presidential speeches and papal audiences while planning to stand to get a good shot at the speaker. He described these thoughts to me as mildly and enjoyable and did not describe any guilt or disgust at having these thoughts. If, like him, you do not feel guilt or distress due to your bad thoughts, you should talk to a mental health care professional about your thoughts to make sure that you won't one day act on them. If you have ever acted on violent or sexual thoughts or urges in the past, either while sober or under the influence of drugs. I have seen several patients who, under the influence of alcohol or other drugs, acted violently or sexually in ways that got them into trouble with the law. When these individuals suffer from bad thoughts, it is extremely important that they get treatment with them to help abstain from these substances that put them at high risk of acting on their thoughts and impulses. Remember that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if you look back on your life and you see that you've acted violently or sexually inappropriately towards animals or people, then you should take your bad thoughts seriously. It may be that you're it may be that you're not able to properly inhibit your urges as most people can. This is called an import This is called an impulse control disorder and you need treatment to learn how to do this. If you hear voices, think people are against you, or see things that others do not see. As you saw in the example of the new mother suffering from postpartum psychosis, hallucinations can be dangerous because they do not permit you to perceive reality accurately. If this is happening to you, please contact a mental health professional as soon as possible, because new medications are available that can rapidly treat these problems with only mild side effects. If you feel uncontrollable anger and find it hard to resist urges to act on your aggressive impulses, the students who fired on their classmates at Columbine High School were examples of this problem. If you feel extreme anger towards a particular person or group of people, please talk to a mental health care professional. Effective anger management treatments exist to help you. I end by emphasizing once again that the vast majority of people with bad thoughts will never act on their thoughts.